St. Paul's letter to the Romans is called the Crown of Pauline Theology. Uh, this is one of the last letters he wrote. It is the distillation for him of a um, long, long time of theological reflection as a Jewish man who has come to Jesus Christ, who has seen his whole life kind of turned upside down. Uh, remember when we did Acts of the Apostles, this is a Jewish man, a brilliant scholar who not only um, acknowledged, or I should say uh, kind of authorized the death of St. Stephen, probably participated in it. Uh, he certainly was the authorizing agent. So there's this total conversion in his life. And that affects so much of what we see in Romans. Because Paul has to ask these questions. I've lived all my life as a Jewish person, as a Pharisee, following the law to the letter. And then I met Jesus Christ. And all of that just kind of went by the wayside because I saw the true righteousness that comes from knowing Jesus and start asking questions about what, what does it mean to be saved and how is one saved? And, and St. Paul's letter to the Romans is really the distillation of that. And we're gonna get this tonight. My plan, um, uh, if I shut up enough, is we're gonna get through uh, chapters two, three, and four, uh, which are, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna move tonight. Um, this is really where Paul is the, the first of two parts in Romans, two, three, and four, the second part being nine, 10, and 11, where he addresses the Jewish question. For those of you listening home, I just did air quotes, the Jewish question. Um, clearly, as we said last week, and, and, and these two chapters or three chapters we're gonna look at tonight, clearly there is a huge Jewish congregation in Rome. If Paul, if Paul is talking about Abraham and David and the old, do you think the Greeks in Rome, first of all, they don't know who those people are, and second of all, they don't care. So if Paul is appealing and, and this whole issue of how was Abraham justified, I can just see the Greeks in Rome going, what, what is he talking about? And why is this even remotely important? So Paul, like a good lawyer, he's addressing each segment of the congregation. Let's deal with the Jewish people first, then we're gonna get to the Greeks. But he keeps this constant refrain, the gospel is for both people. Um, the warning here tonight and, and the good news is those of you who come from the Protestant Reformation tradition, you're going to get off easy a little bit. Uh, the warning here tonight is for those of apostolic Christianity, uh, in particular Catholicism and Orthodoxy, where we have early entry into the church through baptism. What happens after baptism? So that's the problem. We're going to look at the law and, and what place is circumcision. And the Jewish people were saying, well, you know, I'm circumcised. I got everything covered. And Paul's saying, no, no, you really don't. How many times have we baptized you, still a priest? I did it for 17 years. We baptize people and then we don't see him again for 10 to 20 years. You know, so, so the question becomes, what, what do we really think is happening here? And so I think sometimes when Paul is speaking to the Jewish audience, they might be speaking to us too. So let's jump in. Let's jump into the text. Romans chapter 2. Um, Mark, can I ask you to jump in because you're closest to the microphone. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art judged. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Uh, quickly, let's deal with this. He's not condemning any of the Jewish stuff yet. We're, that comes later. What's he condemning here? Hypocrisy. You're judging these other people, and you're doing these things yourself. So uh, good lesson to all of us. You know, just, just keep focusing. Um, you know, there's, there's that wonderful, as we're about to approach those in the Orthodox tradition, we're about to approach uh, Lent, that, that great prayer of, of St. Ephraim the Syrian that we theoretically say every night during Lent, grant that I may see my own sins and not judge my brother. That, that's a good prayer to say every day or two. Uh, Mark, keep going. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance that after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself, wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. All right. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of 
God's kindness and God's wrath. What is the purpose of God's kindness? Well, first of all, how is God's kindness revealed? Through repentance. There we go. Through Jesus Christ leading us to repentance. And, you know, let's, one of those overarching themes of love. And again, I, I get so, and I'm sure your preacher probably gets furious every now and then because I keep pounding this home. It's not all that laudable that we love God. What's amazing is that he loves us. It always starts with God's love for us. And that's the message of the gospel. God loves us. You know, we, we, we tend to focus so much on what we need to do. Well, just focus on how much God has loved us as poured out in the person of Jesus. Um, I, just as a side note, the other day I was flipping around and it was very interesting on Saturday, on one, you know, PBS or XEL, one of those channels, that on Saturday afternoon, because I don't know what people were doing, they show old Billy Graham crusades. And I don't care what your religious persuasion is, one of the greatest ever. I mean, the man was just consistently holy and spiritual for, whatever, 60, 70 years. He was preaching on Zacchaeus, which for those of us in the Orthodox tradition was Sundays. It was, I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. Um, what was Billy Graham's constant message? God loves you, and so do I. God loves you. It's just that constant message. So God's kindness is poured out in the love of Jesus. Let's not forget the last part of verse 5. Read, the, read verse 5 again for us, Mark. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Modern man is very uncomfortable with judgment. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from a modern theologian, I've shared this with you in the past, is Reinhold Niebuhr. And his famous quote, modern man wants God without wrath, bringing Christians without sin into a kingdom without judgment by a Christ without a cross. That, that's pretty darn brilliant. Uh, we're very uncomfortable with that because we're very uncomfortable with sin. We want to excuse it away. We want to pretend it's not there. These are realities. We, at some point, we, you know, life is the letter Y. We have to choose. You either choose Jesus Christ or you choose not Jesus Christ. And then you live with the consequences of those decisions. And the beautiful thing about God is he gives us free will to do that. All right. Uh, on my left. Hey. Okay. Debbie, why don't you pick up in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 6. six. six. Verse 6. Uh, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. All right, so there's two choices. You're either righteous or you're not. And, and the beautiful thing about God is the choice is yours. You can choose whatever path you want. Keep going. Chapter 2, verse 7. On every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality. All right. So while he's addressing a largely Jewish audience, what is Paul saying already? He hasn't elaborated this theologically, but what is he saying? The gospel's for everybody. Amen. All right. Remember, you have the Jewish audience sitting there going, "Well, you know, we're, 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 we're the chosen people," and and Paul is saying, "Yeah, don't be so proud about being the chosen people because they're they're in too." And now we're going to get into how these. And when I say these, I mean the Greeks. How they're going to come in. Uh, Debbie, keep going. Verse twelve. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Let's stop there because this is an important phrase. He's going to be doing something that Paul has done repeatedly in his letters. He's going and attack is the wrong word, um, but let's use it anyway. He's going to attack his Jewish audience by saying, "You're so proud of being Jews. You're not even good Jews. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous." It's the doers of the law. So before he even gets to the part of what place, to, and when I hopefully, hopefully at this point, when I say law, you know what I mean. He's talking about the Mosaic law. What, are the, what, what would be the most important part of the Mosaic law for a Jewish person, especially a male, hint, hint? Circumcision. I mean, if you're a male, you are circumcised. That, that's your entry into the covenanted people with, with Abraham, etc. That's good. Okay. 
um, you know, uh, keeping kosher, all these different things that, that, that the Jewish people would do. Before he even gets to that part of addressing that in contrast to faith in Jesus, he's saying, you guys aren't even doing that. So before we take all this pride in our Jewishness, let's at least be good Jews. All right, keep going. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. John Chrysostom has kind of a, a nice little spin on this. He goes, you notice Paul's delicacy. He's not throwing the law out because if he had done that, what would his Jewish audience have done? Turn him, Turn him right off. So he hasn't, Paul knew what he was doing. He's lining up his argument. You know, I keep saying Paul was a brilliant lawyer. He's lining up his argument in a very systematic way. Had he started out with this whole, it's faith in Jesus, not the law, every Jew in Rome would have said, we're done. This is not for us. He's praising the law. He's, he's saying to the Jewish people, the law is good. You're just not keeping it. And he, he's contrasting that with the Gentiles who have not the law, and they're doing the things that the law requires. Maybe not circumcision, but mercy, kindness, taking care of the poor taking care of orphans and widows. These are the things that, that the, the a community of faith was supposed to do. And he's saying the Gentiles are showing what we would today call natural law. That they're, they're by nature doing what the law requires. So he's very, very wisely not attacking the law yet. All right. Um, Deborah Shallow of you, you're a great leader. Nice and loud so the microphone picks you up. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. By the way, as he's going through this, this wonderful time, does anybody doubt that there's a hammer coming down the, the railroad? I mean, oh, and he's just proud. You're, 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 you're so proud. You're a guide to the blind. You're a this, the, you know, if you've read Paul at all, you know what's coming. So keep going. A light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do, do you not teach yourself? There you go. <laughs> so he, again, is nailing the hypocrisy. Verse 21. I mean, he's. can you just see his audience as he's giving, as they're reading this, what is essentially a sermon, oh, we're the light, we're the light of the blind, and we're the guide to the poor, and we're the instructors of the young. And then verse 21, bang! He just, just clobbers them. You who would teach others, would you not teach yourself? Deborah, keep going. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? <laughs> you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. All right. Again, so what he's really um, giving is this beautiful understanding of hypocrisy. You who are attacking all these things, you're doing them yourself. You who are putting your pride in the law, you're not even following the law. All right. Keep going. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, we're going to go through this carefully. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and Paul Paul can be very, very clever at times. We're going to see this in particular when we get down to verse 29, where we have, uh, there's a wonderful pun that is completely lost in all of our translations today. But um, here's where I say to the Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox, just substitute baptism for circumcision. Circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Baptism is value, as long as we live out our baptismal vow. But if we don't, it becomes unbaptism. Way, way, way too many of us bring our kids to church to get baptized and never see them again. Right? I'm sure in your sermons on baptisms, have we told the joke about the bats in the belfry and the bell tower? There was a church that had a beautiful bell tower. I used to tell this at St. Mark, Deborah, you heard this a hundred times. And there were bats in there. 
and we didn't know what to do. And my, the rabbi next door, he said, I think I know what to do. And he came over and said some prayers in Hebrew. Nothing, the bats didn't leave. The Catholic priest down the church came. He said, I can help you out. And he sprinkled some holy water and said some Latin. That didn't work. I said, I know what to do. I went and baptized them. They were never seen again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, you know, um, well, and these are, these are the realities. And so while we can sit here around Bible study and go, whoa, boy, what a misunderstanding of circumcision they had. Really? You who would teach others, would you not teach yourselves? Paul is speaking to the Orthodox Church today. We have our own people who take pride in the law. All right, Deborah, keep going. Um, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Did you catch that argument? And, and we're going to do this verse by verse because it really is, I think, a very clever argument. Read, I'm going to read again. Verse 28, or 26, excuse me. And he's obviously speaking about a Gentile, a Greek. If a man who is uncircumcised is actually keeping the law, would not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Is that not kind of a logical assumption? Well, here's here's philology or philosophical language issue. So, so the reverse is true. So what he's telling me is you guys are falling short. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, on all these things. So now he's going to do the reverse. If uncircumcision can become circumcision, does it not stand to follow that circumcision can become uncircumcision? He reverses the argument. And, and what answer do you have? Deborah, go ahead and read it. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from man, men, but from God. Paul has just opened up the door in particular, I would say the Roman Catholic tradition to a certain extent, definitely the Eastern Orthodox tradition, um, to the deep spiritual realities of the heart. You know, and if you've ever read the writings from the Philokalia, which I'm assuming we probably have back here in the library somewhere, and if not, I'll donate them. Um, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, not literal. And the writings of the church fathers always talked about the sacraments of the church, these signposts that we have, baptism, chrismation, confession, you, well, maybe not communion because that's like the sacrament of the church. These things are there to, to lead us into a spiritual reality where our hearts are pure and we're focused on Jesus Christ. Forgive me for being this blunt. They're not just excuses to have a big party. There has to be a spiritual reality attached to it. And when you take the spiritual part out of it, I'm sorry, gang, it's just a big party. I mean, I, I, 17 years I did it, you're still doing it. Um, people spend infinitely more time picking out what flavor the cake's going to be of the baptism reception than picking out a godparent for their child. I mean, it, are, are we understanding the true spiritual reality? The last point I want to make, and I'll finish up that verse. I want you to look at verse 29 again. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. This is kind of interesting. Paul has done something which we all completely miss today. He has made a really, really beautiful pun. In the Old Testament, in a couple of different places, the word praise is used for Judah. In the book of Genesis, on two or three different occasions, praise is, is used interchangeably for Judah, being Jewish. Do you hear what he's just done? I'm going to read it now. His praise is not from men, but from God. Right? Let me go back. I'm going to start from the beginning of verse 29. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. I want you to listen again when I read it the second time. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, not literal. His Jewishness is not from men, but from God. You could use that word, the Greek word epanos, in the Old Testament, it's used a couple of times for Judah. 
So not only is this person's praise from God, his Jewishness is from God because he's doing it inwardly, the Jewishness of the heart. Do you catch that connection? I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing Paul has done and he's reminding, especially those of us who have these sacramental realities, it, it's, gotta, it's, it's gotta change the heart. Um, I, you know, I brought up Billy Graham earlier. Um, for what it's worth, uh, Billy Graham once, you know, he, Billy Graham was a, an inveterate record keeper. 90% of the people who came forward during his crusades, during his 50, 60 years, 90%, that's 9 out of 10, were people who had been baptized into other faiths. But, but the baptism just never, never took. Uh, do you know how many Orthodox there are at places like Church of Christ and Calvary Chapel? Tons. Because they're finding something there that, that, that for whatever reason didn't connect in, in, in their home churches. It's got to be a matter of the heart. It has to be an inward conversion. That's what makes the Jewish person Jewish. That's what makes the Orthodox person Orthodox. We got to get beyond just going through the motions. It has to be the inner conversion of the heart. All right, let's keep going on. Ch uh, chapter 3. Uh, what advantage then has the Jew, and what is the profit of circumcision? Now, which is a great question. Having just kind of said, does it, does it really matter? You've got this whole half of the Roman community, Jewish Christians going, so what's the point of being Jewish in the first place? So, he's, so Paul, like a good lawyer, is going to answer the question before they ask it. And charge him hundred dollars an hour. I'm just, just kidding. Just easy lawyers, easy. <laughs> so, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? And he very wisely says, much, in every way, because again, had had. Oh, sorry, I'm late. Good to see you again, friend. For those of you listening, good friend just walked in. Um, again, as John Chrysostom pointed out earlier. Had he not followed up with this kind of softening, he's losing his Jewish audience. What value? Much in every way. All right, Deborah, keep going. Uh, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. But what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome all right, let's stop there. Again, for those of you who are listening at home for the first time, I don't really care what you think. Tell me what the text says, and I hope you have your Bible out and you're reading along with us. Verse 2 of chapter 3. What value, then, is there in being Jewish? Much in every way. What's the first one? Just tell me what verse 2 says. Don't make something up. What does the text say? And Deborah... There you go, the oracles of God. And what does he mean by that? So we're all on the same page. The Old Testament, right? So certainly there's value in being Jewish. You have all these prophecies preparing you for Christ. I love the verb he chose. To begin with, Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Ladies and gentlemen, Angie, we're not excluding you. But just, well, yeah, I got it now because since you joined St. Mary's. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the Orthodox Church, and forgive me for using humor, but now I'm going to be serious. What will be our answer with what we have been entrusted? We of the Orthodox Church, we have the faith, we've got the liturgy, we've got the Bible, we've got the church fathers. These things are all great. I'm not at all diminishing them. What have we done with them? Think, think about what we have been entrusted with as, as followers of Jesus Christ in the Orthodox Church. St. Simeon, the new theologian, one of, my, one of my favorite church fathers, 12th century uh, mystic, um, talked about someone who has a Bible in their house and they never read it. They're like a man who has a treasure in a bag on his back. And he walks around with his treasure and he never opens it. And he doesn't even know what's in there. So because he never opens it and he never knows what's in there, he never enjoys it. He never enjoys the fruits of this treasure. He just carries his treasure around. He knows he has a treasure. And he says, well, do you see my treasure? But he never opens it. 
It's the month of January, Father's Blessing Homes. You know, you put your, your 47 pound family Bible, King James Version, words of Jesus in red on the coffee table when the priest comes to bless your home. You know, you, <laughs> dust, cobwebs, you know. If the priest opens it up, <laughs> bats fly out. <laughs> You know, I, I, every now and then, especially because I, I would bless five, six hundred homes every year. St. Mark is a big parish. And, every, you know, towards the end, you start getting a little cranky. And I would say to people, you know, if you really want to impress the priest, don't put the Bible out. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've said these things to you in the past. They're important now. When this, this whole idea, and I want you to keep your eye on verse 2 and 3 as we're talking about this. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Think about what we do with the Bible, the, the, the Gospels. We encrust it with gold and diamonds, and Father carries it in processions, and it's on the altar. We reverence it when we walk to church. You know the most important way to show reverence for the Bible? Read it. I'm pretty convinced. I, I can't go out on a limb here, and, and if I'm wrong, lightning will hit me on the way home. I think God would much rather have us read the Bible than put diamonds on it and gold and put it on the altar and kiss it. Amen. Infinitely more important for us to actually read it. So we've been entrusted with the, as Paul is speaking to the Romans, he's speaking to us. This is, again, this is one of the reasons why we do Bible study. All right, Deborah, I'm sorry, but you're doing a great job. Keep going, verse four. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the I'm sorry, five, yeah, of give. God, what shall we say? Is God unjust or inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? So what Paul is saying here, by the way, there apparently was kind of this mumbling, rumor, scandal rumoring going around Rome that Paul was preaching this idea that we need to go out and sin because sin shows the righteousness of God. And he's, he's dealing with that, right? <laughs> if our wickedness serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? And here again is that issue of wrath, that, you know, that Reinhold Niebuhr quote. We of the contemporary world are so uncomfortable with a wrathful God, and I, obviously I don't believe God is this angry, you know, nasty guy waiting to zap us into hell, but the truth is there is going to come a day when yeah, we will be judged. Right. We say it in the creed every Sunday. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Do we, right. I mean, do you actually think about that? There will be a judgment. And, and if we have not chosen God, if we have chosen not God, he grants us that wish. So, Deborah, keep going. For if the truth of God has increased through my life to his glory... Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. All right. So now he's starting to broaden his audience a little bit. We're still focused on the Jewish people. But he keeps talking about Jews and Greeks are all under the power of sin. He is about to do something which is so much fun for biblical scholars. Paul is about to create what is called a haraz, which literally means a pearl necklace. Um, is that a pearl necklace? Kind of. Okay. It's, it's a lot of little things that you string together. That's what a haraz is. But what you're stringing together are biblical quotes. All right. Remember, before there was um, concordances and the internet and Google, how did you learn scripture? You memorized it. And sometimes you kind of took quotes from a little bit of everywhere and put them together. That's what a haraz is. What is about to follow in verse 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, is a haraz. it's biblical quotes, just for the record, for those of you keeping score at home, Psalm 14, verse 3, Psalm 14, verse 2, Psalm 53, verse 3, Psalm 14, verse 3, Psalm 5, verse 10, Psalm 139, verse 4, Psalm 10, verse 7, 59, verse 7, 59, verse 8, and Psalm 36, verse 2. He, he's memorized all these and put them all together. And uh, Paul just blows my mind at times. And the common theme is the human body. He keeps using body parts to illustrate his point. I'm going to go ahead and read this one, Deborah, then we're going to go back to you. All are under the power of sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no one, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have gone wrong. 
No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they know not. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Throat, lips, tongue, feet, hands, eye, the whole human body is under the power of sin. Everything we bless the function. Everything. We, oh, you are so good. What you say? That was Mark Samra. Everything we bless in unction. Yes. It is. It is those reclaiming things of the church, where our our physical beings, which tend to run towards evil, because it's more fun. Remember, we, uh, Angie, you missed this last week. We missed you last week, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you, you missed this last week. We can go buy Prince Harry's book. For 35 bucks and read all about the gossip of the king and the queen and who did what and you know whatever I, I, you can purchase on Bar barnesandnoble.com the complete works of saint john chrysostom 4,000 pages of the greatest preacher who ever lived for two dollars and 99 cents why because it's more fun to read salacious gossip about the king and queen of england our eyes can't wait to look for evil our mouth we can't wait to gossip we can't wait to, to share gossipy news that we heard about someone. So when Paul says that we are all under condemnation, both Jew and Greek, it isn't just the Jews, the Greeks there too, everybody's fallen, everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means then what? That everybody needs who? Everybody needs Jesus Christ. Amen. That, and that's what he's leading up. This is what he's leading up to. It ain't going to be the Mosaic law that's going to save you. It's going to be the, the crucified Jesus who's going to save you. But first he has to get to the point that we all needed a Savior. So this, this haraz that, that Paul has pulled together is really just brilliant. How are you spelling that word? Uh, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, I would spell it C-H-A-R-A-Z. Um, it, it's, it, it's just it's the way they did biblical scholarship in the ancient world. They just memorized it. And in his mind, he, he probably had a bunch of these. If he was trying to prove a point, he would just pull out these quotes and here's the way you do it. And so if I'm trying to show that um, the, the entire human race and the entire human body is under the sway of sin, here we go. I'm going to pull together, I think there's a dozen different Old Testament references in this little run that he just did. So it's just a great, great passage showing Paul's brilliance, but it really is pointing out our total need to be sanctified by Jesus. All right, um, somebody on my right. How about Nadine? Can you pick it up nice and loud so the mic will pick you up in verse 19? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And for, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay. Again, while he's seemingly critiquing the law, he is saying that the law does one good thing, if you're a Jewish person. And what is that? It shows us our sin. But what can't the law do? Forgive our sin. And, and I hope you understand the distinction there. He's very clear on that. The law shows us that we're sinners. It just can't forgive us, because there's only one thing that can forgive us, and that's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. All right, Nadine, keep going. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law. Back up, read it again, and slow it down, because this is the essence of what Paul, his theological reasoning has led him to, as a Jewish man, now speaking to a Jewish audience. Read verse 21 again, slow. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Stop. Prior to Jesus, how was righteousness revealed? Through the law. Wow. Now, apart from the law, righteousness has been revealed. And what's the righteousness? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Keep going. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Again, he's, he's just, he's blowing every argument they could possibly have out of the water. He's reminding, your own law and our, he's a Jew, our own law and prophets bore witness to him. They, they prophesied him. We didn't listen. I'm starting to tie together all these arguments you've been hearing all night long. We didn't listen because we're not good Jews. We were Jews outwardly, not inwardly. We circumcised our foreskins instead of our hearts. We were so obsessed with the literal following of the law 
we miss the spiritual following of the law. And everything that the law and the prophets did was to prepare us for Jesus. And when he came, we, we missed it. We ignored it. He's speaking to us. Think of everything, and I include the Protestant church in this tonight, everything the Christian church has been given for 2,000 years. Are we listening? Is our inward man, inward woman being converted? Is our heart being converted? Or are we just going through the physical motions? Yeah, I go to church on Sunday, I got baptized. We do all the physical stuff. Is it happening in here? Is, is the heart being converted? Is the heart being purified? Is the heart being made holy? Or are we just going through the motions? Paul is speaking to us. If you think this is a letter for Jews who lived in Rome 2,000 years ago, you've missed the point of the last couple of weeks. Nadine, keep going. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. I, 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 every sentence, I have to stop you. <laughs> so a, a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. And what is that? The righteousness of God through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. For Faith in Christ for all. There's the gospel. I don't care if you're Arabic, Lebanese, Syrian, Greek, Turkish, Jewish, it don't matter. Faith in Jesus Christ for all, in all, through all. That's how the righteousness of God has been revealed. Nadine, keep going. But there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, and that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember that, that haraz that we looked at in verses 11 through 18. Just the total man has sinned. We, we, he said, Jew and Greek, you, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we say this every Sunday. I believe, O Lord, and I confess that you are truly the Christ who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the first. Or of whom I am the chief. I forget which translation we use here. Do you ever actually listen to those words? Do you ever really, really pray them? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is without sin. And the beautiful thing is, he invites us all to him for that magnificent forgiveness. So Paul is laying the groundwork for the universality of the Christian message in a, in a clear-cut way like he has never done before. That's why Romans is called the, the crown of Pauline theology. All right, um, on my left. Deborah, nice and loud for the microphone, please. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Is there another Debbie on my, uh, on my left? Verse 27. And now he's, he's returning to that theme that we've addressed a couple of times because if you're a Jewish person reading this, well, then what, what value is it to be Jewish? Keep going. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. All right. Here I pull back a bit because, as I said to you last week, there is not one Orthodox theologian, father, or mother of the church who would ever say we are saved by doing works of mercy. And when Paul talks about we're not saved by works, he doesn't mean works of mercy. He means works of the law. But if you are saved, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's lived out in a life. I hope we have time tonight because I want to get to a passage by St. John Chrysostom that's a little bit long, but it's just awesome, where he talks about the life after you've received grace and what that life is supposed to look like and what our behavior is supposed to be. And, of course, John being St. John, he goes off on you're not taking care of the poor, but he really rips into envy and how we get really envious when one of our brothers gets praised. And it's just this beautiful Chrysostom passage. My point here being this. We of the Orthodox have never had the battle between faith and works that Martin Luther did. And here I am going to be tough on Luther and, and the Reformation tradition. 
Luther believed he had a, a sixth sense for reading St. Paul. Um, what he did in this particular verse, he actually added a word to the German translation. For we hold that a man, I'm in verse 28, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He added the word alone. For we hold that a man is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. Um, I think we've addressed theologically, we talked about it at length last week, we talked about it enough a little bit tonight. With all due respect to Martin Luther, who had a lot of validity in what he said, because the Roman church in the 15th century or 16th century was kind of out there, you gotta, man, it takes a lot of confidence to add words to Paul. I, I don't care how you're translating it, if you start adding words to, to kind of prove your point, you got a little bit off the beaten track. I, 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 I studied German uh, at Harvard Divinity, and my professor was Lutheran. He was a Lutheran theologian. I still remember Herr Bodo Reichenbach. Um, and he you know, talked about Paul having this sixth sense. Well, a couple of the passages we were looking at, remember, I'm a Greek. I said, by the way, Herr Reichenbach, Paul's using the wrong verb tense here. When he translated the German, the Greek into German, he was using the wrong verb tense. And he, he kind of looked and said, oh, you, you are correct. I said, well, where's that sixth sense that Paul had for understanding, or that Luther had for understanding Paul? If he's mistranslating this, and I said, let's come back to this Romans where he added the word alone. Of course we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But if you are saved, you will live a life of mercy and charity and kindness and goodness and holiness. There is no juxtaposition. They are one and the same. We don't need to add those. Faith alone. Yeah, duh, of course. Real quick, Jim. He, in the New Testament, Christ says, fulfill the law. But then I hear you hear the word apart like a couple of times. Now, how does that fit? Because, yeah, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But then he uses the word apart. Because, again, what 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 St. Paul is doing, uh, to John's point, he's pointing out that there's this whole new righteousness that is apart from the law. It has nothing to do with the law. All these Gentiles coming in. Remember, when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. Paul is saying, what do we do with all these Greeks who have come in who have zero connection to the law? How do we even remotely address their righteousness? Well, there's a righteousness apart from the law. Got it. Okay. So let's keep going. Uh, Debbie, on my left. Or is he the God of the Jews only? There we go. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So this was John's point. And this is, Paul, you know, kind of now, I don't, I don't say he backs off, but it comes back to the point that Jesus made. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, I, don't, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So he's, Paul kind of softens it a little bit by saying, we uphold the law. He's, by, by having faith in Christ, we're actually upholding the Old Testament Mosaic law because this is what the law was supposed to prepare us for. Right, so far, so good. We haven't lost anyone yet. All right, uh, let's throw it back to my right. Um, Nadine, I'm going to ask you to pick up in chapter four. Yeah, well, you, you're... I, I probably don't need to check this with your husband, but you have a loud voice. <laughs> you have a teacher voice. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. All right. So who is the, the Jew of Jews? Abraham. Abraham's who, who, the one who, with whom God forms the covenant. And before we even read St. Paul, let's very quickly, uh, since Bible Bowl, is that what you call it? Bible Bowl is a book of Genesis. All right, let's remember, what's the, somebody give me the quick Reader's Digest version of Abraham. Why, why, was, why was Abraham the father of the, the nation? What did he do? What was he prepared to do? He was prepared to sacrifice his son. Remember, Abraham was an old man. And in his elderly years, he and Sarah had a child. And God said sacrifice him to me and Abraham was prepared to do that and at the last minute God said no, no no here's a ram let's keep him alive but because you were faithful you were obedient I'm going to make you the father of a great nation is and he the one that lived to 175 something like that yeah um, and then the covenant of circumcision is made through Abraham now remember what we just said 
Abraham believed first. What did he show? Faith. And this is going to be Paul's argument. Before you get any works with Abraham, Abraham had faith. He was deemed righteous because of his faith, not his works. So Paul says he's had this whole argument in chapters 2 and 3 about you know, the primacy of faith versus works and you know, these works are good. Okay, now let's get to the real hammer. You Jewish people who have been taking your pride in Abraham, even Abraham was justified by faith. Even Abraham was considered righteous before circumcision. This is mind-blowing to a Jewish person. Nadine, keep going. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. As a side note, I kind of, he's talked about Abraham, then he brings up David, which of course a Jewish person would expect. I want you to just, those of you, especially of the Orthodox tradition, verse 6, so also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. When might we use that liturgically in the Orthodox Church? In baptisms. Right after the baby comes out of the water. Right after the baby comes out of the water, we sing that, that psalm. Justified by faith, not by works of the law. Blessed is a man whose sins are forgiven. All right? I'll read for a minute, Nadine. Is this blessing, verse 9, is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? Because right? if the sins are only forgiven to the Jewish people, what's happened to all these Greeks? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, we just answered that question. Was When was it? It was before. So Paul is destroying the whole argument that your righteousness comes through works of the law, i.e. circumcision. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now do you see, especially the, the lawyers in the room, where is he going with this? Just like these Gentiles. You have to believe that in Rome, the Jewish and the, the, the Gentile Christians were, they were button heads. As happened in Galatia, as happened in other parts of, of the Christian world in the first century. That the Jewish Christians, pardon? They didn't want the Gentiles. They didn't want them. First of all, they didn't think, that, well, they're not really all there because they're not, they're, not, they're not circumcised. They're not keeping kosher. How can they claim to be holy? They're not following the law. Do you see how Paul is leading the Jewish community down this path? I mean, this is brilliant. He's got them now looking at the primacy of faith, that Abraham was considered righteousness before circumcision, and that's how he was made. And if he did it, now I can just see Paul kind of looking at the whole Greek side of the room. What about them? That's where he's going with this. He received circumcision as a sign of the seal of righteousness, which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Who did he just make the children of Abraham? And the Gentiles. Listen again. Listen carefully to verse 11. He received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, every Jew, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham is the father of the nation. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. He just made Abraham the father of the Greeks. Kind of just destroyed the whole Jewish premise. He destroyed the wall of partition between the two yeah. is what he did. Because Abraham is now the father of the Jewish and the Gentile people. He wasn't circumcised until he was 99 years old. He's a brave man, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He has made Abraham the father of faith. 
not works, <coughs> not just the Jewish people. Abraham is the father of all who have faith through that covenant, that covenant relationship. How far did all this spread out? Because obviously... This, this argument? No, that Abraham being... The, the father Abraham. of all? Yes. Oh, and across the world. That's this is how this is largely how the gospel becomes. Well, within saying, how many years did it take to? Oh, two gener- at least a generation or two. Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why I was asking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the church was largely Jewish for at least the first generation. Um, clearly, with the destruction of the Jewish temple in seventy AD, I think you're starting to see the the disintegration of Judaism. But but yeah, it's it's those arguments that really you know, and it's Paul who takes this gospel and brings it to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. And likewise, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's the father of the uncircumcised, and he's the father of the circumcised. Uh, By the way, not just the circumcised, but those who are actually circumcised according to the heart. Right? Connecting all the dots from tonight. This is just awesome. All right, Nadine, now pick up verse 13. Uh, 13. 13. Promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Right, because the law shows us sin. We've said that. The law is good, it tells us where our sin is. It just can't forgive us our sin. Keep going. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to the grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as those they did. Uh, this is an important point here. Uh, just as a side note, there's a lot of important points. I, 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 well, we got 15 minutes here. Number one, he's talking about the unity of the church. Abraham is now the father of all. You, you have to believe, understand, and certainly I believe, that in Rome, in Galatia, in all parts of the world, the Jewish Christians and the Roman Christians, uh, the Jewish Christians and the Greek Christians, I mean, they're sitting on opposite sides of the table. They're meeting with different people uh, the, 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 this they're, they're knocking heads and Paul is trying to bring unity and what he does to bring the unity he puts us all under the father of Abraham Abraham unites us all he talks about this in the presence of God in whom he believed I'm in verse uh, 17 who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist as a site, so, so God does a couple of things. He resurrects the dead and he makes stuff. Um, Saint Athanasios is going to elaborate on this three centuries later. Quote, others take the view expressed by Plato, that giant among the Greeks. There's Athanasios sucking up to the Greeks. He said that God made all things out of pre-existent and uncreated matter, just as a carpenter makes things only out of wood that already exists. That's what Plato taught. But those who hold this view do not realize that to deny that God is himself the cause of matter is to put a limitation on him. How could God be called maker if his ability to make depended on some other cause? Right? God doesn't need the stuff. He makes stuff. He creates from nothing. There's nothing before God. And, and he, he is the maker of all he not only makes stuff, he resurrects stuff. He not only makes human beings, he raises us from the dead and gives us life. So good stuff happening here. Keep going. Uh, I think I'm at 18. Yeah. Who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old. Good for you catching that he was 99 years old. (laughs) And the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. 
and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. All right. So for three chapters, we've been talking about the law and Abraham and Jewish, and and now we're ready to roar in the next week, and I'll, I'll finish it off. Verse 23. But the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake, but for ours. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. After three chapters of talking about what the law is not, in one verse he tells us what the law is. Read it again, verse 25. Actually, I'm going to back up to 24. It will be reckoned to us, meaning righteousness, who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The law can only show us that we're sinners. Only Jesus Christ can take away our sin. Um, and now it sets the table for next week. Monday, by the way. Remember, we move Bible study to Monday. I consider the next four chapters of St. Paul his most exquisite writing and some of the most incredible expressions of Christian gospel, the love of God for us in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins that, that you're ever going to read. So the next two weeks are going to be important. We'll do two chapters next Monday and two chapters after that. This is what I want you to think about this week. And if you're listening at home, this is what I want you to think about. The law, as we have said tonight repeatedly, can only show us that we're sin, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only Jesus Christ can take that sin away. Every single one of us, whether you're listening at home or sitting here tonight, we've got holes in our heart. We've got pain, anxiety, guilt. Think of the things we do in the modern world to take away that. Drugs, alcohol, caffeine, shopping, sex, pornography, violence, mindless entertainment, anything we can do to fill that void in our life. St. Augustine used to say there is a God-shaped space in the heart of man that is restless until it rests in him. There is only one thing that can ever fill our hearts. There's only one thing, there's only one person that can ever take away our sin. I, I, I'm not picking on substance abuse. People abuse drugs and alcohol because there's pain in their life and they want to numb themselves. Try Jesus. People become addicts to a number of things because they're trying to compensate for it. Try Jesus. People tear themselves up with guilt for sins that were committed 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Try, try Jesus. Um, one of the books that's kind of seminal to the Orthodox world is called The Way of the Pilgrim. And it's about a Russian pilgrim who, who discovers the Jesus Prayer, which we'll talk more about that another time. But one of my favorite parts about it, the pilgrim meets a, a Russian army officer who was a drunk. And he was about to get kicked out of the army because of his alcoholism. And one night, he was going out to a bar to get drunk. And he knew that if he got drunk one more time, he'd be kicked out of the army. And as he was going out of his house to go to the bar, at the front door, there was a Bible there. And he picked it up and he said, you know what, this is kind of interesting. And he started to read the Gospel of Matthew. And he read the whole Gospel. And by the time he finished, three, four hours, the bar was closed. And he thought, Hmm. I didn't go out tonight and get drunk. The next night, it was, you know, the sun goes down. He's a good Russian. He's going to head to the bar and drink vodka. The Bible's at the front door. He said, eh, let me read the Gospel of Mark tonight. By the time he finished Mark, the bar was closed. He hadn't gone to the bar. He hadn't drunk. He started the practice of reading an entire Gospel every night. On the fifth Sunday of Lent, we commemorate St. Mary of Egypt. She talks about for 17 years being in the desert and all she could think about was the drink and the music of Alexandria. She was an alcoholic. The early church didn't know what to call her. She said she would throw herself on, on the desert floor to, to, to get rid of this 
overwhelming desire she had for drink. For the, all she could think about was the wine of Alexandria. She was an alcoholic. The early church didn't have a word for it. They didn't know what they were back then. When you read this year on the fifth Sunday of Lent, and hopefully read the life of St. Mary of Egypt, and read it through the eyes of, of substance abuse, oh yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Especially in her case, where she pretty much you know used her body as her ticket to sleep her way through Alexandria and across the ocean to Jerusalem. That's a whole other story. Think of the things we do to try and find peace. Just try Jesus. Just try Jesus. Paul uses peace a lot of times. He used it a few times tonight. The Jewish word shalom, peace. It's their greeting, you know, hello, goodbye. But shalom really means peace. Peace doesn't mean um, quiet sleep. It doesn't mean the absence of activity. Shalom literally means the presence of God. It's a pardon. It's a different. Piece. It's a very very different peace than what we we think of peace as. I just want some peace and quiet. I want these kids to shut up, and I don't want my phone to ring, and I don't want the TV on. I just want peace and quiet and be left alone. Good, good for you. We all need that. I, I, listen, I, I told you I had a late meeting, which is why I'm still in a shirt and tie. I was over to the school district hiding in the cafeteria for the last 45 minutes because I had peace and quiet. But that's not shalom. It's the inner peace. So when we're racked by guilt, when we're racked by memories, when we're racked by issues, when we're racked by pain, when we're racked by fear, all of these things that keep us awake at night, we've tried everything. Maybe it's time we try Jesus Christ because that is the only thing that can take away our sin. He is the only thing that can bring us shalom, peace. And with that, I say shalom. Good night. We'll see you next Monday. See, I am your rabbi. Yeah, all right.